0: At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles, using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for
1: this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.
0: Hey, it's Max. I'm one of the uh, producers on Stay Tuned. And I want to tell you quickly about another podcast that I think you should check out. It's called Slow Burn, and it is an eight-part podcast miniseries from Slate and host Leon Nafak. It's all about how it felt, how it actually felt to live through Watergate. You probably uh, know the outlines of Watergate. Burglars arrested. Woodward and Bernstein do their thing. Nixon resigns. But there are actually two years of incredible stories in between, and that is what Slow Burn is all about. It also may just maybe make you think a little bit differently about what's going on in America right now. Go check it out. You can find Slow Burn in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this show, which starts right now. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: Whose career is actually helped by speaking out? I mean, certainly a few actresses now might feel this is a bit of a, a moment when to speak out, you know, actually behooves them. But most of the time, anyone I know who's ever spoken out, it certainly doesn't help their career. They don't go on to be promoted afterwards. It's not been something that was beneficial.
0: That's my guest, Tina Brown. She's the former editor of Vanity Fair and The New Yorker and author of a new book called The Vanity Fair Diaries. I'm so glad we're talking to Tina Brown this week because she has been an unbelievable influence and presence in the world of journalism, particularly magazines, for few decades now. She's not afraid to speak her mind. She's been a role model to so many people, men and women alike. And I think you'll find the conversation fascinating. So we're back to a traditional episode of Stay Tuned. Just me sitting in a tiny podcast studio, which is what we've done for a long time, having come off our first live podcast filmed at the Skirball Center at NYU with a Minaj. So in this episode, you will not hear The roar of the crowd my apologies okay now it's time for your questions hi this is michael steinberg from delray beach florida a question about deputy attorney general rod rosenstein there's been talks about him recusing himself because of uh, him being a witness potentially to the comey firing and also there's been talks of trump potentially wanting to fire him Would it be a a reasonable strategic move for him to recuse himself, preemptively to stay out of the line of fire, but also to protect the investigation? And could he therefore appoint his own successor to the investigation? Thanks for advance and love the show. Uh, Michael, that's a great question, and there are various parts to your question. Let me see if I can take them one at a time. First, as for whether or not Rod Rosenstein—I think it's pronounced Rosenstein—should recuse himself, or does he have a conflict of interest? You know, my thought has been for a while, and I think I said this before, it's reasonable to think that he might. He was involved in the drafting of what I think is widely understood to have been a pretextual memo on the reasons for Jim Comey being fired by the president, You know, provide some basis for why Trump should fire Comey. And in that memo that you may recall from back in May, he recited various transgressions that he said Comey had committed in connection with the investigation of Hillary Clinton. Now, everyone who's sentient in the world understands that that really wasn't the reason why Donald Trump fired Jim Comey. I don't think he minded at all how Hillary Clinton was treated. And in part, that's how he got to become the president of the United States himself. So ordinarily, I think it's a normal question to raise of whether or not somebody who has been involved in something that might be within the purview of what is being investigated by the special counsel, namely whether or not the firing of Jim Comey constitutes obstruction of justice. If that's one of the things that Mueller is looking at, it's a reasonable question to ask. I've sort of asked around that question, The people who are in a position to complain about it, uh, meaning Democrats on the Hill, are not complaining about it because they like the fact that even though he wrote that memo that people didn't like, at the end of the day, Rod Rosenstein did the thing that lots of people wanted, and that is the appointment of a, you know, above board, well-respected special counsel named Robert Mueller. And my guess is, and this is just a guess, that sort of Democratic leaders are more worried about who the next person might be, which goes to another part of your question, that if he were to recuse himself, is the next person going to be as committed to the neutrality and independence of the special counsel? You know, Rod Rosenstein testified in the last number of days, and he said things that probably were music to the ears of people who want the investigation to go forward, Democrats and Republicans both. He said he had seen nothing to indicate that the Mueller investigation was tarnished and that he had seen no reason why Bob Mueller should be fired. um, And he didn't have any intention of carrying out that order unless he saw something nefarious. So those are all things that suggest that Rod Rosenstein is going to be supportive of Mueller continuing his work. And if he recused himself, it's unclear what would happen next. I think another part of your question was whether or not he could, in a strategic move, recuse himself to prevent himself from being fired. I mean, I I guess so. In some ways, it's arguable that he maintains his job more easily by being in a position to be overseeing that investigation because his firing, while still involved, I think would cause bloody murder to be screamed. And I think the last part of your question is, could he recuse himself and then appoint his successor? That's not my understanding of how it works. He's the number two person in the Justice Department, the Deputy Attorney General. If he were to recuse himself in the same way that Jeff Sessions, who is the number one person in the Justice Department, recused himself, the responsibility fell to the number two person in the Justice Department, and that was Rod Rosenstein. If he were to recuse himself from a particular matter, my my belief would be responsibility for overseeing the special counsel would fall to the number three person in the Justice Department, Rachel Brandt. I have no reason to think that Rachel Brandt is anything other than, you know, full of integrity. But I think probably the folks who want the Mueller investigation to continue unmolested like the devil they know versus the devil they don't know. Our next question comes from Twitter user The Bad Bad Lauren. That's two bads. That's a lot of bads. This person also had a question about the Mueller investigation. Hey, Preet, what do you make of the claim that Mueller obtained Trump transition emails illegally? My sense of things from the the information that I have is that it's not a very legally meritorious argument. It is standard operating procedure and practice for investigators to obtain from third parties, including uh, people who host email servers, people who have bank records, people who have phone records, to get that information from third parties. And that's what they did here. It's also my understanding that the information that was obtained by the special counsel team was obtained during the time that the president had not yet been sworn in. So it was a transition period, and they were obtained from the GSA, the the General Services Administration, that was hosting the servers for the transition. And from what I've read, it was made clear that there was no expectation of privacy in those emails. I've also heard that one of the arguments being made by some of the Trump lawyers is that there was executive privilege that might attach to these emails. Executive privilege is something that's much fought about and you know not that well understood and the parameters are not fully clear based on what court rulings have been. But one thing that is clear is you actually have to be the executive before you can assert executive privilege. And by definition, if you're in the transition, you're not yet the executive. So I think that argument falls flat as well. So look, I think it's the case as I experienced many, many times during my time as the United States attorney and that other prosecutors have experienced. People don't like to have their information given to authorities. People don't like investigations. And from time to time, like is happening here, they want to attack the prosecution. team. I thought it was notable that Peter Carr, who's the spokesperson for the special counsel, who doesn't seem to have a lot of work because he doesn't do a lot of spoking, that he actually went out of his way to make a, a comment about how they go about getting information, which I thought was significant and notable. And it, it clearly you know, struck some kind of nerve on the Mueller team. We had a few questions about Trump's judicial nominees this week. Uh, You may have seen a viral video of one Matthew Peterson who struggled with some basic legal questions put to him by a Republican senator on the committee, John Kennedy. He was asked if he ever tried a case, civil or criminal. He was asked when the last time was he read the federal rules of civil procedure. He was asked questions about what's called the Dobert standard. He was asked questions about some other doctrines, one called the Pullman abstention doctrine, I think, and the younger abstention doctrine, and some people had a concern that this person may not have been qualified to be on the bench. So Twitter user John Landis asks, at what point in the vetting process should Peterson have been stopped? Is the administration not vetting or just throwing up everything to see what sticks? So, you know, those are good questions. I spent, you know, four and a half years of my career working on the Senate Judiciary Committee, helping to vet nominees. And, you know, from time to time, presidents of both parties will put forward folks about whom there's a consensus that they're not qualified. You know, it happened in the Bush administration. It happened very, very infrequently, if not ever, by the Obama administration because they took the position that they wanted to vet through the American Bar Association first. And if people didn't pass the vet and there was going to be a unqualified conclusion, then they pulled that person, which I think is probably the best way of going about it. And Matthew Peterson, in the wake of that pretty awful performance, on Capitol Hill, has withdrawn himself from consideration for a federal judgeship, which I think is well and good. And maybe this is bad for me to admit, but you know, I thought some of the questions. It was not crazy that he did not have, you know, deep facility in how to answer them. It has been a long, long time, and I have a you know fairly deep legal background and oversaw an office that did both civil and criminal work. That that I had to answer a question about the details of the Pullman abstention doctrine, or younger. To me, the biggest two problems were, one, that he had no experience. And so when you say, when should he have been pulled? When should the nomination have been stopped? Probably after a a pretty quick look at his resume. He had served as a lawyer on the Federal Election Commission. He'd been recommended by the uh, White House counsel himself, who had been the chair of the Federal Election Commission. So there's a relationship there, which always you have to worry about. You know, it's not dispositive or prohibitive, but you have to worry about it. So he begins with a negative strike because he hasn't spent any time doing the kind of thing that a judge has to do. But more importantly than that, in some ways, the way he acquitted himself in front of that committee was, I thought, appalling. You need a judge who has some uh, gravitas, who has a proper temperament, and who knows how to control the courtroom. These decisions that are being made by a trial judge, and that was the position for which he had been nominated, a district court judge is a trial judge. uh, He or she does not make decisions— when briefs are being filed, only by sitting in his chambers, consulting with other folks, making sure he gets it right. Some things happen that way. But a lot of what gets done in the courtroom happens live, in real life, kind of like a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing. And if you're going to blanch and uh, look like a deer in the headlights, every single time some lawyer raises a question or an issue that you don't know how to handle, that I think is problem. And would have portended that he's not in a position to control a courtroom. He's not in a position to earn the respect of the litigants in the courtroom. And he could also be in the position of being, you know, tricked or fooled by, I've seen this happen, clever and smooth-talking lawyers in the courtroom. Now, maybe some of those things could be corrected after the fact if he had very smart law clerks. But the judges are the ones who put their name on the opinions, not the law clerks. And so I think overall, uh, a lot of people had some fun at this gentleman's expense, I think he should be allowed to continue serving as a member of the bar in some other capacity, far from a courtroom, but overall, I think it's a good thing that he withdrew This next question comes from Twitter from a person whose handle is at first Uber driver. No way you were the first Uber driver, but you know I appreciate the handle uh, and the question is all Turkish people following Zarab case and people wonder why you stopped by the court yesterday so What this Twitter user is referring to is a case that has been mentioned from time to time in the press and on the podcast involving a gold trader who is currently on trial in the Southern District of New York, my old office. It involves a gentleman by the name of Reza Zarab, who's a gold trader from Turkey, and he was charged with, among other things, violation of Iran sanctions. Reza Zarab has pleaded guilty. I said pleaded that time for some people. He has pleaded guilty to all the charges, and, in addition, some other charges as well, And it's cooperating in the case and it's testifying as a government witness in the case. And so on Monday, I actually had lunch plans with a prior podcast guest, who I thought was a wonderful guest on the show, named Jed Rakoff, federal district court judge. I got to the courthouse about 15 minutes early, and I don't like to waste time, so I had a little bit of time to kill. And as a private citizen, I wanted to see what trials were going on, and I realized that in the courtroom that the Zareb case was going on, I wanted to say hello to the team that I used to oversee. And so for about 10 minutes, I stuck my head and sat in the back of a little bit of that trial. That's the only reason I was there. Because I got there early, I wanted to see what was going on, and to say hello and uh, wish luck to the prosecutors I used to work with. That's all. My guest this week is Tina Brown. She's the author of a new book called The Vanity Fair Diaries, and I think it's a must read. She has been the editor of Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, she started The Daily Beast, and is the creator of the Women in the World Summit. In a media world and culture dominated by men, she was a force to be reckoned with and a driver of fundamental change in the industry. Tina and I had a frank conversation about a lot of things, including what she thinks about Harvey Weinstein, Al Franken, and Donald Trump. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. If there's one thing that all former U.S. attorneys for the Southern District of New York have in common, it's that we love a good sauce. It's even rumored, although I can't fact-check this, that Ogden Hoffman, who served in the position from 1841 to 1845, never ate a meal dry. Now you're probably asking, what does sauce have to do with my cell phone bill? It's because Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell all of their wireless services online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. For a limited time, their premium wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. To get the new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com preet. upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. At the Coca-Cola company, Keurig Dr. Pepper,
0: and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic, New bottles made using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at org. Tina Brown, welcome to Stay Tuned.
1: Thank you, Preet. Wonderful to be here.
0: So I had been thinking, how do I introduce you? And you know, we have a limited amount of time, and if I introduced you with all the titles you had in the past... It would take the whole 45 minutes. How do you introduce yourself?
1: I say Tina Brown, editor, writer.
0: Okay, so editor, let's start with that. Would you like more?
1: There's nothing more satisfying than having written a good page and the sort of tremendous joy of having finished it. On the other hand, there's nothing more sheer rip-snorting fun <laughs> than putting out a magazine.
0: I'm not sure what rip-snorting means. You don't know what we don't, have to, Stein, we don't have to translate that. Um, I also am an immigrant. <laughs> I just want to stick on this: is writing. You know, I'm writing a book, as as you may know, as we were talking about before we went on air. It's really hard. So, do you have Do you have advice that you want to share with? I'm sure a lot of our listeners. How am I supposed to get this thing done?
1: Well, at, 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 I used to talk about getting from right is something that we called a vomit draft. Okay. And I got that wonderful A vomit draft. A vomit draft. I got that term from the great writer, Alex Shumatov. He used to talk about his vomit draft. And I came to understand what he meant. You've got to get something on that intimidating piece of empty paper. You have to get something down. However you get it down, it doesn't much matter. And however bad or chaotic it is, it also doesn't matter. But once you've got something there to work with, that is the beginning of writing something. And I always try to get people to do that. And if they can't, I say, do it as, a, as an email to me. Just write me a long, garrulous email, you know, uh, or keep a diary, any of these things, as long as you get it down. Once you've got that down, then you can start to shape. I really recommend it.
0: Uh, but have you always written that way? Or have you- I
1: don't always observe that. I mean, right. <laughs> the killer is when I start to kind of write the same paragraph 10 times and disobey that juncture, which is to say, I'm going to get this paragraph right instead of getting down the whole very quickly. I really think if it's possible to get down the hole in some bad, you know, chaotic way, it's it's the best way to get it done quickly.
0: So you've written a book called The Vanity Fair Diaries, which chronicles your time as the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair from 1983 to 1992. And so what's funny about that, given what we were just talking about, this is a revision of kind of a vomit draft. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that what a diary Absolutely. is? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. The diary is the ultimate vomit draft. And, um, It was really fun, though, going through the vomit draft and extracting.
0: (laughs) If people are listening to the show, you should put down food and drink until we're done.
1: Um, It was really fun extracting um, what Virginia Woolf once called the diamonds in the dust heap. You know, you you have to uh, look for the jewels amongst the the vomit draft, and also um, try to maintain the uh, authenticity and pace and freshness of a diary, while at the same time pruning and making it more cogent and making it you know, better. And the better wasn't about um, changing the language necessarily or, or sort of cleaning it up or putting it into a coat and tie, as it were. But it was just simply about often explaining or, or, or sort of illuminating or, you know, in a diary, you're shorthanding all kinds of things. And you sometimes, I sometimes would have to fill it out or contextualize or make it explicable and just cut out the boring bits. You know, it was all about cutting out right. the boring bits.
0: Do you, do you keep the diary for yourself or for some other purpose? It I was therapy? purely for
1: myself. Keeping yeah. my diary was about explaining what I was doing to myself, what I was thinking to myself. It was about unloading. I mean I came to America in 1984 and my, my husband was working in the, uh, Washington. My parents were living overseas and I didn't really have that many friends when I arrived here. So it was also about talking. It, would be my, it might have been that if my mother had been there or my best friend had been there, I would have called them. You know, and, and and talked. But this was pre digital too, so there wasn't I wasn't gonna waste the evening doing emails. So having g- gone out and watched a bit of cable TV, there really it was about either reading or, or writing my diary. And I ended up wanting terribly to unload my new, fresh impressions of of the new of America. You know, I just arrived.
0: Did you share any of the diaries along the way with No, folks? I
1: never shared my diary with anyone. And uh, it was never supposed to be read by anybody. I mean, diaries are supposed to be... Kept well, now open.
0: it's in a book. It's nicely bound.
2: <laughs> and you can purchase it I never it thought I would Amazon. do that.
1: I thought it might serve as the basis for something. But, you know, when I went back to... to when, I, when I thought about doing a memoir, I found writing... The whole idea of a memoir just so deadening somehow. Yeah. Um I know you're about to write one, but... Uh, it's not a memoir, but it's... No, it's not a memoir. I'm not sure what it is yet. The whole thing of like, you know, sort of ferreting through your papers and, yeah. and sort of reading old, uh, you know, missives and memos and things. I began to find myself very kind of weighted down by the whole thing and feeling half dead doing it you know and so the diaries I thought I'm going to go and look at these diaries from the 80s maybe there'll be something from Vanity Fair that I could do you know that I could start with it was really about how do I start my book so I started reading these diaries thinking this is a place to start and then I can always flash back or forward but as soon as I started really reading them I realized that there was so much good stuff in them frankly that that um To make it into a book would mean I would have to then take out out what was there and sort of thematize it or just use bits and pieces. And I felt there was really enough great stuff that I wanted to see it appearing as it was written.
0: One thing that struck me even before I opened up the book, you have blurbs, the obligatory blurbs from famous important people on the back. And I was struck by uh, what Meryl Streep wrote on the book jacket. Uh, And she refers to you in the following way. She says, a cultural catalyst, she makes things happen. Thank God she wrote it all down. Did you think of your role as more of a cultural catalyst, or a cultural analyst?
1: Well, I actually did see myself as a catalyst because I think that editing, producing—they're very similar—and um, I saw. I think that editing a magazine, not 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 necessarily a literary magazine or a newspaper, but a glossy magazine, particularly, is about pulling together numerous elements and creating a zeitgeist, really, with what you're publishing. And so I suppose. I did enjoy the ability to make things happen with a magazine to put things into the into the uh into the conversation and I still enjoy doing that very much I mean uh Women in the World Summit, which is what I'm doing now. I looked at the agenda just the other day for our last April summit, and honestly, it could have been today. You know, it was it, we yeah. had we opened with an incredible sexual harassment conversation. You know, way before all of this, which was about how HR is not your friend, how to get, you know, how how to how, how to actually you know beat HR when you're trying to get compensation. Uh, what happens to your career when you do? We had a firefighter who was harassed. We had Gretchen Carlson. We had all of these people who are now on the agenda. So. You know, I've always felt desire to get these conversations going and to try to be ahead of them rather than just follow them.
0: Let's go back to the 80s for a second, Would you write about in the book. How is life different in America? How is culture different with respect to men and women and women's equality or lack of equality with men?
1: I think still sort of hugely different. I mean, both very different and very similar. I was struck when I was watching some of the 60, the, the the footage that um, CBS took of me at uh, they they used some old footage from from the sixty minutes thing they'd done in uh, the end of the eighties with me, and I'm shown presenting the magazine to the management and it's me and all of these men right and at the time I never really thought there was anything strange about that you know I didn't I would not talk about it I didn't say oh my god I went upstairs to promote the you know to present the magazine and right. it's all men all men of fifty five sitting around a table. It actually looks like Trump's cabinet that, right? <laughs> it really did. They're a bit and, older than 55. Yeah, either. exactly. But I I would be struck by that now. I mean, so that that, that, is, that is definitely very different.
0: You're struck by that now because it is hopefully more rare.
1: Well, I don't know that it's that rare. As I say, Trump's cabinet looks like that now. But I certainly would be. I think we're much more sensitized to at least be aware about it and think there's something wrong with this picture.
0: Do you think it makes a difference that there is a, a woman boss at the head of a magazine or an institution or a bank – or a country with respect to how women are treated in that environment? It seems like an obvious yes, but I well, want not, to know well, your it's thoughts. It's not
1: obvious if it's just the woman and the no top. one else. I mean, it's funny. In Germany now, uh, I was reading, you know, women think you can either be a chancellor or a, or a housekeeper, you know, because there really <laughs> isn't anybody in between. It's not like right. – so. Uh, I think not all women at the helm have meant that it makes a huge difference to having women in the company. I do actually think that, that having many more women in management does hugely affect the way women are treated in a company. Yes, because I think there are many more voices who are raising dissent about the way women, the women are treated. There, it isn't uh, an accident that there were like ten men on the Weinstein company board. Right. You know, I mean, there really weren't any women saying, "Wait a minute, why are we paying off these?" It's not just about you know, is it okay to renew his con- Harvey Weinstein's contract? It's, it's about like, why is he paying off all these women? It's got to stop.
0: I'm going to have a few more questions about Harvey yeah. Weinstein in a minute. But when you, were the he- when you were the head of a magazine or any institution, and you said a minute ago that you didn't necessarily think that much of the fact that all these folks were men, but were you conscious of being a woman in that job and, and what you were projecting about the culture of the place to both men and women at the institution? Or did you not pay that any mind?
1: I really was blazing ahead and did not pay much attention to it quite honestly. I mean, I was was young, I was incredibly ambitious, and I just wanted to make my mark as an editor. And I wasn't really worrying about what I seemed to be or was to was. I simply was sort of charging ahead and making it up as I went along.
0: And what's your advice to women in the workplace?
1: get your army in place you know get your plan and your strategy in place because one thing i think you learn as women as you get older is men seem to have networks in place to be there when they fall women don't you know they just don't and i think it's largely because women are so engrossed very often actually in their families and their child raising and so on that they don't have a great deal of time to spare beyond Office and you know work and family, work and family, work and family. That's certainly the way I was. And in the in in the diary, somebody said to me, "There is not a lot about friendships in the diary beyond work." My work was my family, and my family became my work. You know, uh, except of course my real family, which right. was my other great passion in life. So I had these two passions: my work and my work family, and my real family. In between that, there really wasn't any time for anything else.
0: Is that is that the best dynamic? I mean, people talk about work life balance. We used to talk about it in the I don't think work life
1: balance is. At all possible if you're trying to be successful. I mean, I think that actually... That's a mildly controversial thing that you're saying. Well, listen, I managed to... I mean, I think you just kind of become super focused on that. I mean, as I say, I think things. some things have to... You lose certain things. I mean, I think that I would like to have had more friendships going on, more relaxation going on. But all I cared about was getting home to my kids, you know? So it was like that was my focus with a razor eye. You can't have everything. You can't have everything. No. So, I mean, now actually I've got much more time for friendships, right. you know, and it's wonderful. As a matter of fact, I, I, I love the fact that now when my kids are offhand, suddenly I've got more time to develop my friendships and I'm glad that they're still there.
0: You once said, as a, as a bit of advice to young women, quote, don't send the email right away. Think about it till tomorrow. As someone whose life has been rendered chaotic by reply all, <laughs> learning to wait... Has been a big lesson. What did yeah. you mean? What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I'm very impulsive by temperament, yeah. and I definitely think. I mean, I, you know, I've I've been grateful sometimes to wonderful members of my own team who say, "Don't send it," or who just don't send it, which is even more helpful. And I'll say, "Did that note go?" And they say, "Well, I thought I would wait." <laughs> I love I loved one or two people in my life who've done that for me because I'm I am very impulsive, and and I think one of the worst things about digital life is that people are responding too quickly. They're just responding too quickly. They're not thinking about things.
2: So
0: going back to issues of of women in the workplace, and you have started this very important organization. Tell us about that for a second.
1: Well, in 2010, I started Women in the World Summit, which is about creating a platform, a venue for to hear women's voices. I mean, I'm on the board of Vital Voices, which is an NGO which mentors women in emerging countries. And I kept meeting extraordinary women from Africa and India in the Middle East who were facing down such genuine oppressions, you know, whether it's child marriage or honour killings or you know, FGM or even access to an education. And they were just remarkable voices. And I felt, you know, there's no place for these women to to, to tell their stories. So I thought how interesting it would be to start a summit, a conference where we could bring these women in and have them tell their stories and then have a few of the other kinds of women who are more famous so that people would want to come in and buy tickets. So we launched it in 2010 in a small theatre. And the first panel actually was about Congo. We called it Rape as a Weapon of War. Amazingly, really, when I think back about you know you're going to open a summit with that subject, but it was very powerful. We had a a, a woman who had a radio station in Congo where she was she she had women phoning in and, and giving witness and bearing testament to the to, to the the fact they'd been raped and speaking aloud about something which had never been really talked about out loud. And this radio call in show became this extraordinary force for kind of shaming and naming uh, people in the military. So that was – we we played it in a dark theatre with um, subtitles on the screen. It was extraordinarily powerful, actually. And once we started it, it just took off immediately, I have to say. And, I mean, actually, Hillary Clinton has been every year except last year – except the year before last. And uh, we moved into a big theatre in Lincoln Centre, you know, to – now has 2,500 people every day for three days. We've done it in India, London, Toronto. Uh, It's become quite a sort of global platform. And I think really has been um, at the forefront of many of the issues that are now happening now. But the interesting thing is that, you know, I started it because I thought women needed here, needed to be aroused, as it were, by a kind of global women's movement that I could see happening beyond our shores. And I felt at that time the women's movement here was very torpid, actually. And now it's like the whole finger has come around, you know, since the Women's March uh, this year. We've seen an explosion of American women's feminism, right? American voices, which really had sort of gone a lot to sleep over the last few years. Why
0: do you think it had gone to sleep?
1: I mean, obviously there were some great women's voices out there. There was feminism happening, but the, it didn't feel urgent. You know, it didn't. The younger generation, in particular, thought it was kind of their mum's issue. You know, and
0: <laughs> but is that? Do you think that's because those particular people with those particular political points of view thought they had a hospitable president?
1: I think they thought they had a hospitable president. I think they thought that. There was, you know, movement, and there has been movement. Obviously, I think they thought that, you know, they were they were working towards getting a woman president. I think they thought that, you know, women were gradually going onto boards. But it was glacial, is the truth. I mean, the fact is, it has been glacial the movement. And in fact, there really hasn't been a great deal of movement. There's been opportunity, and there have been women who are CEOs of, you know, major companies and so on. But it's still very small, and there's a sense of being stalled. And actually, only three or four years ago, I was actually thinking of writing a book called Stall, because I felt that, you know, having done Women in the World as long as I had, that I kept hearing these same stories. It's like it's not actually changing. That's why the women from overseas were so exhilarating to hear because they felt felt like they were just breaking through giant problems and we needed to think about doing the same thing here.
0: How much of a difference would it have made if a woman had been elected president?
1: Well, I think it would have been different in America because I do think that actually if Hillary were president, she would be laser focused on many of these issues that women do care about. You know, when she was Secretary of State, she had a Secretary of State for Women in, in, in Milan-Viver, you know, and, and there was a tremendous effort to bring women into all aspects of foreign policy. So I, I do think it would have made a big difference. But the tragedy in a sense for Hillary was it, it, her loss is what galvanized right. women. I mean, young women were not as galvanized by Hillary when she was running as they are now she's lost.
0: Do you think Al Franken should resign?
1: I think he resigned too fast. I I, I don't know enough. You know, this is the problem right now. Is
0: That's a little bit controversial, what you're saying, in some quarters.
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I'm very concerned about due process, actually. I'm very concerned about that. I want to know precisely everything that he's supposed to have done while he's been a senator. Uh, and I I think it was too hasty. You know, it may well be that he should resign, but I'd like to have known much more about what it is he's supposed to have done.
0: Are you then, are you critical of the the several dozen Democratic senators who asked him to resign?
1: In this atmosphere, I can't really be critical because I think there is such a sense, rightly so, uh, of outrage. Uh, the rage of women right now is a, a righteous thing. You know, there's no doubt about it and i believe that that righteous rage is not just about sexual harassment not that there's a just in it you know some of it has been so bad
0: what is it what else is it about it's
1: about this question that i mentioned about feeling so stalled so kind of marginalized so constantly promised something that isn't gonna, isn't happening in terms of representation instead in terms of being at the table in terms of women's uh, dignity and and place in, the, in in the world being properly observed it is just tremendously Uh, women are very angry and they feel disgusted that we have in the White House uh, someone who so clearly disrespects women, um, whose cabinet has such a small representation of women. It's just that it's just token women almost, you know, except for just two or three. There is a real anger about that. I think rightly so. So, you know, it's very difficult to criticize anyone right now for feeling angry and perhaps acting in at times impetuous ways.
0: Do you think that the president should resign based on the allegations made against
1: him? I don't think that Trump should resign on this now because I think as he was elected president, when the electorate knew, that was the time for the referendum on that. I'd like him to resign for other reasons. For every reason, actually.
0: <laughs> if you were a reporter in the field, how would you be covering these issues differently from how they're being covered now? Or would you not?
1: It's focus that's the issue right now is how to focus on, on the issues. I mean, I'm always interested in... Feeling right now that, that there's so much coming at us with Trump, how do you stay focused on the really important things? because he's brilliant at just sort of throwing drama at us every day.
2: So what would you pick uh,
1: i mean i I, I want to know what is happening I, i'd like to, I'd like to focus now actually on how women are being treated by this presidency, not in terms of sexual harassment but in terms of funding and reproductive rights and and uh, uh, you know justice which I think is, you know, getting completely not talked about anymore. We were talking about justice reform. And I don't know whatever happened to that. Maybe you could tell us. Well, that,
0: I think we we have been talking about it some, but I, but I agree with you. There, there's, It seems like that, that it's very difficult to spend more than half a day talking about something that someone might, might think is an injustice or a derogation of an American institution or a violation of an important and valued norm in democratic society. Because there's another outrage Mm -hmm. in the next six-hour period. Yeah,
1: I mean, outrage fatigue is one of the issues.
0: I want to ask you about a couple of other people. Do you think that Charlie Rose, who I know and I know you know, should have been forced out for good based on the allegations against him?
1: Well, I was taken aback, frankly, about Charlie Rose when I uh, saw the uh, allegations about taking the young interns up to Belport. And what I'm very surprised about, frankly, though, is – That the network doesn't sit him down and say, look, if you keep on taking young interns up to your house and parade around in a bathrobe, we're not going to distribute your show anymore. You mean before? Before, yeah. Yeah. So I don't understand why it got to be what it became for so long. There's a lot of
0: enabling you think. A lot of
1: enabling, I think. And I think it's unfair, by the way, to criticize the producer who worked for him about that. That is about the people who are the money. That's about the people who are the distributors. That's about people who have the power to say, we will drop your show. Uh, only those people can say to someone like Charlie Rose of his kind of magnitude, you know, this is, this is somehow got out of control and, and it's got to stop. So that is what really sort of puzzles me. And having had that come out now, I don't really see how he could certainly be restored to that network. I'm not sure whether it means that someone should lose their entire career. I mean I think that is uh, the question now is what is the appropriate punishment if you like for having overstepped uh, in, in, a, in a really egregious way.
0: When you were the head of you know one of the 300 magazines that you were the head of at one point did you have to ever have to deal with a situation where there was misbehavior on the part of a senior male with a female? Did you have a view about how that should be dealt with?
1: It really didn't. It, it wasn't something that I really uh, I mean it was just such a different time, you know, that it wasn't something that was that was coming up to me. I mean, at Vanity Fair, it was mostly women and and gay men. Um, and
0: but you're not saying it wasn't happening. You're just saying at the time, there was less reporting of these yeah. things. So I want to ask you about Har- Harvey Weinstein. You worked with him. Mm-hmm. He funded one of your magazines. I know you've been asked mm-hmm. this a lot of times. And how do you feel about that and what he's been accused of with the
1: benefit of hindsight? You know, I find it just so unsettling and upsetting. And... He was so horrible to work with, period, that
0: you found that to be true.
1: Found absolutely. Right. He was. He was. He was dishonest in ways that were damaging to everybody. He. He. He was a liar. You know, he did you was, know that before you started of course working with him on no. I mean, okay. not. I mean, of course not. did he not have a reputation for being that he, way? look when he, what he had the reputation for is being a rough, tough, uh, bombastic, you know, uh, salesman vulgar but had amazing taste had amazing marketing flair all of these things clearly you don't go to work for somebody you think is a vile lying you know so of course not um but at the same time you know one had no i had no idea that this was stuff was happening of course not but it was nonetheless his technique of bullying was very similar to what one's his now sees in his uh in the all of these sexual revelations you know when when i first saw the tape or heard the tape of him and the Italian uh, girl that he'd uh, accused of molesting and she was wearing a wire, right? And he's trying to get her to go into his hotel room. I found myself really upset by that because it was so much the tone of voice he would use to me when he was trying to bully, wheedle, aggress, hassle, make me feel bad about something – this was the tone of voice, the combination of the wheedle and the bully and the don't you know who I am, you've got to do this for me, and all of this stuff, it just brought it back to me in a way that I found, you know, made me a somewhat sleepless for a few nights. When
0: when Harvey Weinstein spoke to you in that way, um, obnoxious bullying, wheedling, did you think he spoke to everyone that way, men, men and women both, or do you think you were treated differently because you were a woman?
1: I saw him treat men just as badly. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I might argue that in terms of sheer vile physical bullying, he was almost, he seemed to me, worse to men, actually. In public. Uh, in public. It was obviously, you know, this was before we knew about the bathrobe. Uh, a stunt. Yeah,
0: and lots of other things. Um, and lots of other him. things. If you had one piece of advice to give both men and women at magazines or in Hollywood or at, you know, you name the workplace, what would it, what would it be to, to, to help to make things better? I mean,
1: <laughs> Due diligence. Yeah. I mean, I, I asked myself, why didn't I ask more questions?
0: Well, who did I ask questions f- of?
1: why didn't I phone 10 people who worked at Miramax and say, what's it like to work there? You know, I mean, somehow you can become overly bedazzled. And I have to say that in the case of Harvey, part of his technique, which you can read about now in the way he was with women, was he's this explosive secrecy around him all the time. And so, for instance, I did know uh, a Michael Eisner for whom he worked, who was in fact, you know, owned Miramax. He wouldn't allow me to call Michael Eisner, who I knew, to talk to him about this whole job offer that he made to me. Now, you might say, well, what do you mean didn't allow you? Why didn't you just pick up the phone and call Eisner? And it's because he really, he said, you will not call Eisner. Like, he just, he made it that I was betraying him by doing that. And somehow, you know, this is the power that he had over people. He was a very scary man, actually. Very, very intimidating.
0: So do you think we have reached something of a watershed? Or do you think the Me Too movement, do you think that we're on the road to something better? Or do you think it's short-lived?
1: Well, my biggest fear about the Me Too movement is that it has set something going, but it doesn't trickle down. I mean, clearly, the women who are powerless, who can't afford expensive lawyers and who are not celebrities and who's, whose lives are of little interest to anybody except themselves, are the ones who are most at risk uh, as we saw with the hotel maid at the Sofitel, when when D- D- Dominique Strauss Kahn raped her, which he did, you know, in in the Sofitel hotel, you know that exploded because he was Dominique Strauss Kahn, not because the maid was complaining about it. How do we go about helping those folks? Well, that is the great question, and that is what I'm I'm really concerned about. I mean, I think we have to make sure somehow that these women have access to some kind of pro bono help. That we need more more organizational. Uh, questioning of how people are being treated at work give them a a sense that they can complain and not not come off better for it i mean let's face it i don't think i can think even now even in the higher echelons of life who are making all this noise right now whose career is actually helped by speaking out i mean certainly a few actresses now might feel this is a bit of a, a moment when to speak out you know actually behooves them but most of the time, anyone I know who's ever spoken out, it certainly doesn't help their career. They don't go on to be promoted afterwards. It's not been something that was, for them, beneficial.
0: But if a friend came to you in recent times who said that she had been abused or harassed or the victim of worse, and the the person who was perpetrating those acts was somebody who was powerful and famous, today would your advice be, you got to go forward because it's important? Or, or would you worry, as you say that, you know, they could be further harassed publicly because of their disclosure of those things?
1: Well, I think I would have to say to them, how brave are you? Yes, how brave are you? I mean, Argentina, the Italian girl who uh, uh, spoke out against him, uh, uh, I think it was a Argentina, Argentina. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. It was Bateras, the one who went to, went, had to go back to Italy, the one after that Harvey Weinstein uh, uh, aggressed. I mean, she her career was a disaster until this whole movement. I mean, she, she she got a settlement from him, but nobody returned her call. She didn't get modeling jobs. She didn't get acting jobs. She had to go back. Uh, she had to go and live in the Philippines. Her, her career was destroyed. People don't want to touch you if they feel that you're toxic, that you're dangerous, that you could make trouble. Big companies don't want to hire you either. So uh, making trouble doesn't get you anywhere uh, most of the time.
0: It's an interesting conundrum because when I had a different job, when I was a prosecutor... We were in the position all the time in lots of different circumstances and scenarios to try to get unwilling victims to come forward. Not necessarily in this type of scenario, sexual harassment, but robbery victims. People have been extorted by the mob. And, you know, on the one hand, we weren't their friends. And we would have to make the pitch that there's a, there's a larger issue than just what it means for you. And we understand and respect and are sensitive to the fact that you and your family might have uh, some collateral consequences visited upon you. But if everybody did what you did, if everybody decided to be afraid, and the, the fear is totally understandable, but if everyone decided to be afraid and nobody came forward, these bad people—whether it's a mafia boss uh, or a fraudster or someone else—they're going to keep doing it to other folks. And so we would try to appeal. And
1: to you were their obviously courage. very good at it. <laughs>
0: well, we got a lot of people. We got you know. You did. And you, and you don't. You know, I, I used to tell assistant U.S. attorneys in our office, you don't learn that out of a book. And sometimes you would have victims. This has become a bigger issue now, also. Given the immigration battles, we'd have, you know, I, I did a lot of organized crime cases out of Chinatown, and the perpetrators were organized crime. Chinese organized gangs. But the victims were, too, and some of them were not documented. And so, you know, a, a whole separate show we can do on this issue, talking about immigration issues. But these people who had been robbed at gunpoint and tied up and feared for their lives didn't want to testify, understandably. But if they didn't testify, then it would happen again and again and again, and they could become victims again. So it's a very tough—
1: It's agony. It's agonizing, agonizing thing. It's actually agonizing. I mean, it was and easier
0: for us because it was our job to get them to testify, so we could convict and hold accountable the bad guys. It's. I know it's a different situation when you have no. It's a agony. It's agony.
1: I mean, if you are, you know, you ask me what I would do, I mean, the first thing I would try to do is get them another job. Yeah, I really would, and I. I don't know that I would say, looking at them as my friend. If that was a person who was a friend of mine, I would want. I would ask them, "Do you want to have the collateral damage? You have to be willing. You have to embrace it and know that it might happen to you."
0: So. There's one person we haven't talked about directly, and I know you get asked about him, I do too, in every interview. Give us one minute on Donald Trump.
1: Well, my one minute on Donald Trump is that I think I got him right in the diaries, in the Vanity Fair diaries. I mean, I meet him in 1987. I think that he's – I like him at first. I think that he's a bombastic – a bit like Harvey Weinstein. Actually very similar. (laughs) Bombastic. Yeah, bombastic uh, but fresh, you know, uh, a rascal all those kind of slightly friendly words that imply that somebody is an enjoyable con man, right? But then as the years go by, he gets less and less enjoyable. And by the end of the the diaries, when he, when he comes in, you know, I see him as a fraud, a malignant fraud, and one who is... Uh, uh, as opposed to a benign fraud. As opposed to a benign fraud, exactly. And that's kind of where I am with Donald Trump, that he has become a malignant fraud.
0: Was there a moment when you think... You realized that Donald Trump had gone from being a benign fraud to a malignant fraud.
1: Well, I think it might have been the moment when Marie Brenner, who is reporting on him for our, our, our magazine, uh, saw Hitler's speeches on his desk right. and wrote about that. And he was so outraged that he then poured a drink down her dress at, a, at an event. And that's when I realized that he was the man was just had become dark. And I think there is a darkness to Trump. Actually, do you think he became dark, or was he always that way? I think he's changed, actually. I have a feeling that he has changed. I think rage at not being in his mind considered. Um, It's really interesting in life how a sense of being uh, not considered by the people that you want to be considered by can turn you really malignant. It was kind of the same with Nixon, too. He always just felt angry that he wasn't given proper respect as he felt. that Even though he
0: became the president?
1: Even though he became the president. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. He felt strongly. That he didn't have the respect, that he didn't have the, uh, that he never really had the same, the, the kind of appropriate uh, level of, which could just simply be about megalomania. That nothing was able to assuage it. Certainly true with Trump. I sat behind Trump at that White, White House correspondent dinner in which uh, President Obama absolutely brilliantly mocked him. The, the year oh, that, I remember. Yes, I remember when he caught the year that he caught uh, Osama bin Laden the next day. Yes, and. He was making fun of Trump so and The whole room was laughing. And the whole liberal elite in Trump's mind and in his perception was laughing at him that night. And I sat behind him and I saw his neck go from, you know, pale pink to beetroot. And
0: <laughs> he was not laughing. He, he was, was not, not smiling. Laughing.
1: And he was beside himself. And I believe that that was a very key night for, for Trump. I think that he really conceived uh, an abiding hatred of all of those people who were laughing at him and in particular President Obama who carried it off with such elan.
0: On that note Tina Brown thank you. It's thank been a you. a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show. Thank
1: you so much Preet. Thanks.
0: So this is the point in the program where every week I talk about something in the news that kind of struck me. And today I want to talk about an interesting anniversary. So today December 20th marks the 100th anniversary of something called The Cheka, the founding of the Cheka, which is the notorious Soviet secret police force that people believe was responsible for mass executions during the Russian Civil War. This date is celebrated in modern Russia as Security Services Day. Now, the Cheka, whose 100th anniversary is being celebrated, is a precursor to the KGB and what now exists and is called the FSB. The FSB is one of the premier domestic Russian intelligence agencies. And what's interesting about that celebration and that anniversary is that even in a country like Russia that, how shall we say it, frowns upon protest and demonstration, sometimes a little protest can happen. And that's what happened today when a member of the band Pussy Riot, Maria Aliokina, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, decided to engage in a little protest of her own. And the reason I know about that protest Is because one of our prior guests on the show, the estimable Ben Wittes, tweeted about it. Here's his tweet. And no, Ben is not paying me to keep plugging him and his podcast. Uh, Quote, This is the coolest protest of the year. This woman, referring to the Pussy Riot member, stood in front of the FSB with a sign that reads, quote, Happy birthday, executioners, close quote. As of the time of this recording, she, I believe, is still detained and unclear how long she will spend in prison. You may know and recall that members of the band Pussy Riot spent almost two years in jail for protests that they had engaged in previously. And another prior guest of this podcast, Gary Kasparov himself, was arrested when he was protesting their detention. And so just I wanted to say quickly, you know, we should always be thankful for the ability we have to protest here, and we should always, so long as it's peaceful endorse, appreciate, support the rights of people in other countries, even Russia, to protest as they see fit as well.
2: I hope you get out of jail soon.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Tina Brown. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. As I've said before, it really helps new listeners discover the show, and and it's a nice read for me. Send me your questions about news and politics, Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338 That's 669-24-PREET Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios It's produced by the team of Pineapple Street Media Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell and Max Linsky Our music is by Andrew Dost And special thanks to Julia Doyle Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. Just a quick programming note, we're off next week between Christmas and New Year's. Don't worry, we'll be back on January 4th. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.